Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? Rocket Ajax. This is the internet's most explosive comic book and pop culture podcast, and we are your hosts. My name is Chris Sims. With me, as always, is Matt Wilson. Matt, how are you? Chris, I'm okay. How are you doing? Well, Matt, we got a great show tonight. Yeah, we sure do. We really do. Our guest is Dave Baker. We're going to be talking to Dave about uh, his new book, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, which is as conceptual as it sounds uh and so we're going to talk to him about all of that uh high concept stuff that went into making that book and it sounds very very cool it it just came out this week and uh i can't wait to read it uh but it it is it is a fascinating conversation with dave yeah we talk about process working through stuff in books the choices that Dave has made in formatting it. And of course we also do talk about uh, some really good stuff from Star Trek. Of course, uh, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine comics writer, Dave Baker, definitely uh, Voyager, Voyager comics, Voyager. Why? I said, why did I think it was Deep Space Nine? We talked about Deep Space Nine a lot. We did. Uh, yes. Voyager comics writer, Dave Baker, uh, Definitely field some some questions about Star Trek. Uh, but before we get to our conversation with Dave, Chris, we do need to thank our supporters over on Patreon. That's right, Matt. These are the people who have gone all the way down to Six Nice Gimmick Street, and you That's know what's right. there. Oh, I know what's there. <laughs> oh, boy. You know I know what's there. Uh, you do know what's there. I know, there, I know you know. Over there at Six Nice Gimmick Street. Uh, the nice. mattress store. It's a mattress store. Yeah, it is. That's it. That's what's there. You got it. Yeah. There's a mattress store. Yeah. It, it used to be a Hardee's. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell by the design of the building that that's what yeah, it used yeah, to yeah. be. Yeah, it's very distinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the the sign still says Hardee's, but they've written mattress store in the letters. It's weird. It's a it's a good store though. You can get a nice mattress there. You can get a nice mattress there. Real nice. I just winked. So while you're out there shopping for a mattress, because there's cause and you should go there to shop for a mattress, because uh of all the fucking mattress places that advertise on podcasts, ain't a one of them come knocking to our door. That's true. And I got one of them mattresses, and it's good. And I would love to tell you all about it, but they didn't give me any money. Unbelievable. These Patreon supporters gave us money. <laughs> These Patreon supporters did give us money, and they did that by going to patreon.com slash Ajax and kicking in as little as a dollar a month to help us keep the show going. And um, maybe most importantly, helping us pay those gimmicks they keep sending in the mail called bills. That's right. And our newest supporter over on Patreon is Philip Flores. Oh, thank you, Philip. If you would like to be like our supporter, Philip, 
and the 400 or so other supporters we have over there on Patreon, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash Ajax and kick in as little as a dollar a month, just like Chris said, to help us keep doing this show every week, to do Every Story Ever specials monthly, to do Comics Catch-Up monthly. We just did a Comics Catch-Up about X-Men Red that we got hype about X-Men Red. Go yeah, listen I don't know to that if you have up is, is good, but I'll tell you, the X-Men Red pretty good. Movie Fighters and Snacks situation, all of those shows are made possible by your support over on Patreon. And as a patron, you get every single episode of every show that we do completely ad-free. Uh, you get your own feed over there on Patreon, where none of the ads are there. You can just listen straight through. and You uh, won't even know where to buy mattresses except for the mattress store on gimmick street yeah at six nice gimmick street that you'd think that hardy's would have done better being right next to the devil's tramping ground i mean they stopped serving breakfast at like 11 that's the problem Mm. i guess there's not enough old people that's that's pretty far from the old people district on gimmick street yeah so there weren't like you know like 12 to 30 70-year-old men in jeans sitting there for three hours every morning. As a patron, you can get other cool stuff, including bonus content that we sometimes make special for Patreon that we record. We'll record audio and put it on the Patreon exclusively. Sometimes I'll cut stuff out of the show, uh, and you can get the outtakes on Patreon. Sometimes there's writing that is exclusively on Patreon. Uh, Chris has a good number of video game reviews over there that you can go read. Um, I've written a couple of things exclusively for the Patreon. Um, lots of bonus content over there that you can go check out. If you've never subscribed to the Patreon before, there's quite a trove of content there that you can that will be new to you. Uh, you can also get line-stepping privileges for our segments currently, Every Story Ever and Thursday Night Raw. And you can also get physical rewards, including T-shirts. Um, the 2024 War Rocket Ajax T-shirt is is being designed currently. Uh, we saw some preliminary designs; they look great. And if you thought we ran out of bits to make T-shirts out of, we haven't yet. <laughs> Still got bits. That's next year's T-shirt. War Rocket Ajax. <laughs> Still got bits. <laughs> uh, if you're unable to help us monetarily, you can help us out in other ways. You can leave us a five-star review on the podcasting app that you use. That would help us out quite a bit. Uh, help bring new people to the show. Or you can help bring people to the show uh, by spreading the word. Doing some good word of mouth for us. Uh, telling your friends about the show, either on social media or when you see them in person. Or, heck, if you talk to them on the phone, you can tell them about the show. With that, Chris, it's time for some checks and wrecks. What do you say? Let's do it. Chris, you definitely dodged my question about how you were doing earlier. So what do you have to check in with? Matt, I had a check. I had a check ready to go. Yeah. And you know what it is. Yeah. It's it's a bummer, and I don't want to do it. 
That's okay. That's fine. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. Here, here's my check this week. I got some. I'm fine. I got some rough medical news. I'm fine. It's it's I'm the fine kind of. Be fine. It's not the. I'm in. I'm in. Life threaten a life threatening situation kind of medical news, but it is the sort of like I might have to change my lifestyle kind of medical news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But don't don't worry, I'm fine. Matt will not be entombed alive with me as I have special uh, specified in my will. Yeah, uh, <laughs> should I die first, Matt must be entombed alive with me, so that I may podcast in the afterlife after I am judged. Die how you lived. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, like that's I'm fine, but it's that's that's my week, Matt. Well, how about you? Well, Chris, this isn't. I actually... got a much more pleasant wreck. Don't worry. Good. Uh, this isn't a check from this past week, um, but I thought I should check about it because it is relevant to this podcast. Um, and it was, it was part of the Marlene birthday celebration. It was actually the earliest part of the Marlene birthday celebration. Um, a couple weekends ago, Marlene and I drove to the small mountain town of Silva, North Carolina, which is a great little weird mountain town. I, I if you're in the area, I would recommend checking out Silva. They've got some nice breweries downtown and stuff like that. It is also the home of the American Museum of the House Cat, which we visited. It is a wild place, my man. Okay. I did it, I saw on I saw this on Instagram that you had done that. Yeah. And I was intrigued. It's it's very Roadside attraction Because here's what it is. It, it, it is a museum. Like, they have displays under glass and all of that kind of stuff. But it also definitely feels like just one man's collection of stuff that he has gathered over the course of a lifetime. And so it is this odd mix of actual historical artifacts. Like, there are real mummified cats in this museum. Oh. That, that seems weird. Oh, me. they. It, it, the Egyptians actually did mummify cats. Y- yeah. Yeah. Okay, so they're, they're Egyptian mummified cats. I d- yes, yes. Yes. Okay, see, I was under the impression that these were, like, recently mummified cats. No, no, no. These are, like, ancient artifact mummified cats. I do not know how they were acquired. <laughs> that also seems a bit weird. <laughs> this could be a real Hobby Lobby situation. Yeah. Uh, but they, they were there on display. But also, there's, like, a lot of just, like, tchotchkes... And sort of like novelty art pieces and like like novelties, like things that only barely tangentially have anything to do with cats, like signs for like nightclubs that have cat in the name, 
or the thing that was like the best example to me of something that like you probably could have left out of the collection. Um, you know how like when you're at the gas station and at the the counter, like the front counter, there are those like pills that are supposed to make you help help you do sex good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the horny goat weed yeah. and that kind of stuff. So there was one that was named like Black Cat or something like that. And it was just the pill that they the guy this guy clearly just bought at the gas station. And he's like, that that's named after a cat. So he that was in there in one of the display cases. Um also of note, um, I counted sixteen items of Garfield memorabilia. The largest of which was one of those um, you know the rides like outside the grocery store where you put in the quarter and they just kind of shit, you know, move back and forth. Yeah. Uh, there was one of those that was a Garfield. It was like Garfield in a car, and like you were supposed to get in the other in the like the passenger seat of the car while Garfield so drove. Garfield was driving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. Shockingly, That's there was not one of the things that Garfield can do. It was also bigger than Garfield would be in real life. Um, but shockingly, there was more Felix the Cat memorabilia than Garfield memorabilia in the American Museum of the House Cat. But the the best item of Garfield memorabilia was a printed out Garfield strip signed by Jim Davis. So not an original. It wasn't like the original art, no. It, I guess I guess it was a print. Not like a computer printout. It was a print of like a Sunday Garfield strip. And Jim Davis had signed it. And it was like personalized. Uh so there was a library of cat books, but it was it was like a relatively cramped enclosed space. It it was weird, but it was also fun. And if you're ever in the area, it's worth going to the uh, the American Museum of the House Cat. So that's my check, my visit to the American Museum of the House Cat. Um, it's time now for some recs. Chris, what do you have to recommend? Matt, I got good news. Oh, a, a gospel, even. That, that's true. Matt, I'm back on my bullshit. <laughs> Were you ever off of it? <laughs> I am back on a specific kind of bullshit. Okay. I I have never in my life... I've been on my bullshit since day one. Yeah. Yeah. My earliest memories are of being on my bullshit. But yeah. I'm back on this particular one that our listeners are going to know. And that, Matt, you're going to know. That's right. I'm on the Persona train once again. Right, back on it. Back on it again. Yeah, but I'm not playing Persona Five Royal again, even though I did buy it again. I don't want to, and I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I need them all in one place. <laughs> I need them all on one device. Don't want to hear it. But there is a new Persona game uh, that is not. It's an old Persona game made new again. It is the remake of Persona Three. Persona Three Reload. And uh, I, Persona 3 was put out on 
uh, Steam and Nintendo Switch uh, last year. And I didn't get it because I talked to our buddy Annie Creighton and she was like, yeah, you probably aren't going to like the mechanics. It's a, like, it is a couple generations back. Like, this is a game that had its original remake on the PSP. So I skipped out on that one. But this new one basically takes the story, the characters, everything from Persona 3 and presents it in the style of Persona 5. So it has probably the most beautiful graphic design I've ever seen in a video game. Uh, if, if like The reason I went back and gave Persona 5 another shot was because I kept seeing YouTube videos about how good the UI was. And uh, this is just like that, except it's blue, which is a color I like more than I like red. So uh, <laughs> it's got that going for it. Also, there's a fucking playable dog in this game. That you That's gotta important. wait a while for him to show up on your team. But Persona 5 had a cat. So, I mean, you might like that, Matt. I might. I might. Uh, Final Fantasy 7 also had a cat. Final Fantasy 7 has a cat and also, like, another cat? It had two cats, yeah. It had two cats. <laughs> Doesn't have any dogs. What uh, is Red 13? I mean, he's an experiment, is what he is. Yeah, but he was like a dude before that. And by dude, I mean like a lion. Yes. Yes. I don't know. He ain't a dog. I'll tell you that for free. Koromaru is a dog. He goes wolf. He has a persona. It's very exciting for me. He will never leave my party. (laughs) He's going to be with me for the whole thing. Uh, So yeah, I'm really, really enjoying uh, Persona 3 Reload. Uh, it is very much like, it it is very much more Persona 5 in a way that, uh, going backwards with Persona 4 Golden wasn't quite. This is clearly like, oh, yeah, like, like, we remade this because everyone likes the fifth one, and so we, we did this. Much like I think the, the Yakuza games did when they remade one and two, uh, after they did Yakuza 0. So, if you've enjoyed Persona 5 and somehow you haven't gotten into uh, Persona 3 Reload yet, it does have my seal of approval. And honest to God, the most beautiful transition to the menu screen I've ever seen. I I have sent it to multiple people. I've posted it uh, where, where our friends could see it, because I'm like, you would not believe how good this game looks. Uh, runs great on the Steam Deck. And yeah. Oh, the other thing. If you get the uh, the Deluxe Edition, you get all the Personas from uh, 4 and 5 as well, including the ones that you couldn't actually play as in that game. So you get Robin Hood, which is very exciting. I love their version of Robin Hood. Uh, Matt, what is your recommendation for the people this week? Chris, my recommendation is a show you can watch right now on the uh, the Peacock streaming app you watching a show on the cock the comcast universal peacock streaming app i got one, i got one for this keep, keep going keep going here's the thing here's here's my word of warning about this if you open peacock you're gonna be recommended the wrong version of this show 
don't watch the version that Peacock recommends to you. The par- the version where you see Alan coming, because that's the American <laughs> version of this show. What else do you see Alan doing? Very funny. Uh, Matt, uh, I just want to ask you, if you're talking about um, that you were watching this on the uh, on the Fajinaday Fajinane network. <laughs> I definitely didn't get that right. I, I know what you were going for. Yeah, yeah, you got it. So, okay, there's an American version of this show, which is called The Traders. Don't watch it. It's bad. I got like five minutes into the American version because it's like celebrities. But, you know, like, like you know, the kind of barely famous celebrities that are often on reality shows. And it ruins the whole dynamic. The version you want to watch is the UK version of The Traitors. Because... It just has regular people. It's all based on, like, there was a Dutch show to begin with. uh, Which, you know, I'm not going to watch because I don't speak Dutch. But the UK version uh, is hosted by Claudia Winkleman. And all the contestants are just regular folks. And, Chris, have you ever played the game Werewolf? Uh, Yes. This is a a reality show that's just Werewolf. And it's great. But only the UK version. They bring in 22 people to a castle in Scotland. And 19 of them are, quote-unquote, faithfuls. And three of them are traitors. And every night, the traitors get to murder somebody. Thus kicking them off of the show. And then the next day, they do a challenge to add money to their bank for whoever wins in the end. Either a traitor or a faithful who ends up winning at the end. And then they sit around a big table and try to figure out who the traitors are and have and vote off somebody. And when they're voted off, they reveal whether they're a traitor or a faithful. It is the it is the most American style British reality show I've ever seen, but it's also still pretty British in that the contestants like help each other sometimes. Okay. The the way it plays out as a game of werewolf over like the course of like a few weeks is is fascinating and very fun. It Marlene and I watched this show in like it was we were definitely doing the like okay play the next one <laughs> like constantly i think there are 12 episodes there's only one season of the uk version and i think it's 12 episodes long um and it's a blast it's so much fun i love playing the game werewolf as like a party game to begin with so making it into a reality show is a blast uh and and if you're looking for just kind of like Mindless reality show and entertainment to watch. Uh, the Traders on Peacock.
but not the American one, the UK one. You're going to want to see Alan going. (laughs) I wish the American one was good, because I think Alan Cumming as a host is probably a delight. But I can't get past the contestants being celebrities. I don't want to see that. Uh, All right, Chris. Those are our checks and recs. It's time to talk about some comics. Let's do it. Now dig this, Matt. Y'all know I love stationery. Y'all know I love to take notes. I love to write. I love to write on paper. I love to write notebooks. Matt, what'd you give me for Christmas this year? I got you notebooks and pens and organizers. Correct. I love it. Uh, And I find that it genuinely helps me remember things better as opposed to typing them or like putting them on a, like a text file or whatever, actually writing something down physically helps me a lot. It helps me organize my thoughts. It helps me get my work done. And ever since I got my new uh, iPad and I got the Apple pencil with it, I have been doing that on there and that's great. The only problem I've had with it, it doesn't quite feel like writing on paper, which is a feeling I like. We have the solution to that problem. That's right. Paper-like. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's a screen protector for your iPad. It uses a proprietary technology called nanodots. With those nanodots, you feel the natural resistance of paper on your iPad screen. It is a paper-like feeling on your iPad. So if you're drawing, if you're taking notes, if you're using your iPad like you would a notebook... Here's the way for it to really feel natural. And Chris, I know you love that. You you have an iPad, you got a paper like, and I'm sure it's it feels just right for you. It does. It feels great to use. Also, Matt, you know I'm very particular about paper. I have yes. specific brands of notebooks that I will and will not use, and paper like feels good on the iPad. Uh they also make accessories for the pencil to make the pencil a little more comfortable to hold. They make uh, accessories to help you clean the iPad as well. They've got it all. The ability to handwrite notes in a digital form is great to begin with, but getting that extra tactile feeling that makes me happy while I do it, (laughs) that gives me that little dopamine, that little serotonin burst that I like to have, is fantastic. The latest version of the Paperlike is manufactured in Switzerland using high-quality plastic foils designed for maximum picture clarity. You're not going to lose any of the definition of your iPad screen if you put a paper-like on there. And these foils are developed exclusively for paper-like products. It also always comes in a set of two, so you have a spare. Look, we know a lot of artists listen to this show. If you're an artist and you're looking for a way to make drawing on your iPad feel a little bit better... This is how you do it. So, to pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com slash Ajax, click Buy Paperlike, and select your iPad size. From now, right now, until the end of January, Paperlike is also including their Digital Pro Planner Bundle at no extra cost for every order placed through the Paperlike store. Plus, shipping is completely free. So if you're ready to do more with your iPad, head over to paperlike.com slash Ajax, to get started. The winner of this week's Texture Choice is Batman number 143. 
which I texted you about, Chris, because mm-hmm. what I had to text you is, holy shit, Chip made three Jokers work. Yes. Because it's just one Joker. It's one Joker who has three personalities because the guy who taught Batman how to have a backup personality, how to have the Batman of Zurin R, taught Joker the same thing. So the three Jokers are just Joker's three distinct personalities. Uh huh. That he developed through training. Yes. That tying, is brilliant. Tying the Grant Morrison idea of Batman having his backup personality as the Batman of Zeranar to the Grant Morrison idea of the Joker uh, is has super sanity and reinvents himself uh, every day by creating different personalities. Tying those two things together in a way that Grant didn't do. Mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. Well, yes, applying Batman of Zurin R, the, that thought process to the Joker, because the story that's been going through the past two issues of Batman has been Joker year one. And it is, so it's it's going back and forth in these two time periods where in the there's the time period where Joker has just become the Joker. He has only j- fallen into the vat of chemicals at Ace Chemical when he was the Red Hood, and it's bleached his skin white, and he's kind of like figuring out who he is as the Joker, right? And then there's the story in the far future, or not the in the future where the Joker is this like weird, creepy skeleton man who has turned everybody in Goth in Gotham into jokers. And I got to say the, the art in that part, it's not bad, but it is disturbing. It's, it's, it's very 2000 AD. Yeah. Like it, it, like that, like, I think it's in this, yeah, it's in this issue where there's that, like, panel of Joker wearing this nude, except for this weird red robe rising up out of the ocean. Uh That is, it's so 2080 in a good way, in a way that I like. I mean, I. I I have a like I love hate relationship with it. It like there's times where it's kind of like where it looks kind of like when Batman was in Internet 3.0. Yeah, it's got a sort of like posed art sort of look to it, and Batman sort of looks like Ben Affleck. So it's it's Giuseppe Comunicoli doing the flashback parts, the year one parts, and it's Andrea Sorrentino doing the flash forward parts. And again, the art is not bad. It is doing what it's meant to be doing. It's just like disturbing looking, uh, in a way that I'm not, <laughs> it, at times it's off putting. Uh, but, but I think that's the idea. 
for better or for worse. But yeah, the, just just the notion that Chip figured out how to make three Jokers part of continuity and it works and it's good is mind blowing. Yeah. Also, I really like that um, these these three Jokers, by the way, they're not the the criminal, the comedian, and the clown. Two things that are the same thing, and one thing that all three of them are. Um, the first one's the clown. The second one is the demon, and the third one is death. Yeah, I think it's. I I think you could probably still put them in the categories from three jokers, but they're not called that in this, and I think that is for the best. Yeah, well, and the way that they're depicted is like the clown is kind of classic Joker. The the demon is like is like Morrison Joker and then the death is like like very much the Scott Snyder era yeah. uh you know end game Joker. Yeah. Death is like the master planner. Yeah. And I I think who looks like he's from uh season 4 of Batman the animated series. Yes. I think that again that is that could apply to the John's versions of the three jokers. But uh, yeah, again, I'm glad that they are not uh named those names here. But also the way Chip not only ties this into the Batman of Zurinar and Morrison stuff, but also his own Batman the Night series. Mm-hmm. Is, and back to Zero Year. And back and Zero Year, yeah. Um th- okay, so this guy who is teaching Joker about the backup personalities and all of that. Is that Henri Ducard? Or is that somebody else? That's somebody else. Okay. He's in the night, but I don't remember him from Batman the Night because I haven't read it in a bit. Yeah. And I don't think he's ever named in this. I don't uh, think he is. I don't think that's a new version of Henri Ducard. Uh, I'm not sure. Do we have any uh, French listeners? Am I going to get yelled at again? <laughs> Henri Ducard. Henri Ducard. Uh, anyway, I, I love the way Chip is just like tying all these disparate stories and elements and things about Batman and the Joker together. That's kind of been the the thrust of Chip's entire run. Mm-hmm. And I love it. I love every bit of it. It's good stuff. I'm I'm into it. You know I'm into it. I know you're into I it. I think this entire run be about the fucking Batman is there an R is great. Agreed. Agreed. And and the like the effects of the Batman of Zurin are uh, outside of Batman. Yeah. Uh which is great. Uh one other book I want to talk about real quick is um Fall of the House of X number two, which is about exactly what it sounds like. Um this is Orcus's big attack on Krakoa and the X-Men. And and things are looking pretty bad for them uh, right now. 
this is Jerry Duggan and Lucas Werneck uh, on uh, Fall of the House of X. And the, the X-Men start to make a little bit of a comeback in this issue. Uh, Polaris, like, fucking wreck shop uh, at one point with the brood. But, like, Cyclops got put on trial last issue. And it was, you know, it was a kangaroo court. There was no method of Cyclops, like, succeeding in that trial. Uh, And, like, things still look kind of bad for him until the very end of this issue. Uh, Krakoa itself has been kidnapped and has to be saved by Juggernaut. And, like, I, I, I kind of hate to see this era of X-Men end. Especially after, you know, we just read X-Men Red and it ruled so hard, right? Mm-hmm. But we also knew that it couldn't last forever. So, you know, I, I get it. Um, also, uh, Dr. Stasis is in this. Uh, who is another Nathaniel Essex clone? He's he's the one with uh with the clubs. Club. Yeah. He's the one with the club on his head. Yeah, um, and he's he's been working with Orcus uh, this whole time. Um, and you know, I'm enjoying the story. I will say this: it's weird to see the X Men you don't necessarily always see doing killing. Doing killing. Okay, I'm, specific, I'm specifically talking about Nightcrawler here. <laughs> yeah, he does seem like the the least likely. Yeah, I mean, look, I know that they're like fighting for their lives, and this is basically a war. But there's one point in this issue where Nightcrawler just takes a moment to teleport alongside like an Orcus soldier out into space and just leave that dude out in space and then teleport back onto a, a spaceship. And that's rad, but it's also like, man, Nightcrawler just fucking killed that guy. And like, you know, Wolverine's also killing people, but like, that's normal. And, and even, you know, Kate pride, has yeah. no compunction any longer <laughs> about that kind of thing. <laughs> but she's, it's, she's a ninja. Matt. She's yeah. a ninja and a pirate captain. That's true. Uh, but it's a little weird. It's a little weird to see Nightcrawler doing that kind of thing. Um, it's also interesting to see this tie into the stuff we just read in X-Men Red. Like, Manifold is a big part of this, uh, too. Uh, so, so, you know, Mixed feelings, I think, about Fall of the House of X, but I, I cannot uh, knock the craft. The, the craft on these issues uh, has been really good. And uh, I think that's that's it for our comic segment, Chris. So now it's time for us to talk to Dave Baker. What do you say? I think we should do it. program we are very pleased to welcome back a friend of the show here to talk to us about the new 
upcoming graphic novel from Top Shelf. Or no, not even upcoming. It's out now. You can go get it from Top Shelf Comics. Mary Tyler Moorhawk. Dave Baker is here. Dave, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Of course. Uh, it is always a good time to talk to you. I'm so, I, I want to apologize. What? Why? <laughs> because I'm about to do the bit that if you're on other podcasts, I feel like you're you're getting a lot. Oh, okay. Let me, can I guess what you're going to ask? Can I guess what the bit you is? You can. All right. My bit. My guess is you're going to say either, so, Mary Tyler Moore, are you like a big fan? Or, so, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, she looks kind of like Mickey Mouse. You know what? You were closer with the first one. What okay. I was going to ask is, can you turn the world on with your smile? I see. Yep. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing of like, I don't, I'm not upset by that at all. Like, you know, it is what it is. I knew what I was getting into, but it also, it, it is a little, uh, I kind of have to stutter step emotionally a little bit, mostly because I forget that it's a reference because I've been working on this book for five <laughs> years. That it, to me, it's not even a reference anymore. It's just like, oh yeah, that's what the character's name is, right? Um, and I feel like that's kind of a lot of the things I make are that, where it's like it starts out as like the dumbest joke possible that I then take really seriously for an extended period of time, and then eventually someone that is not me goes, oh yeah, that's a joke, right? And I have to go, it's not a joke. It's not funny. I've spent five years of my life working on this. But actually, wait, no, it was a joke initially. Shit. <laughs> There's a, uh, uh, the character of Molly Harrison in Downset Fight, uh, the book that, that uh, Chad Bowers and I did for Oni Press, uh, was originally named Molly Hatchet. Mm. So I know exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just... <laughs> You forget. Yeah, you just forget. You know, you become too close to it. You see the the mechanisms of the things that you're trying to get to work, and uh, you lose track of the fact that they're actually, like, to a normal person, that those things aren't visible. So, what was that initial joke? Mary Tyler Moore, and uh, I'm a big Michael Moorcock fan. So I was like, it would be really silly if there was a character named Mike, Mary Tyler Moorcock. And then I was like, I don't want to do that. That's weird. And then <laughs> that slowly just evolved into Mary Tyler Moorhawk as a action-adventure, globe-trotting, Nancy Drew archetype of a character. Um, and That's, very inter- That's very interesting to me because I, I would have put money down on it evolving from Mohawk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Somebody earlier yeah. today mispronounced the book. They were they were talking to me in an interview, and they said Mary Tyler Mohawk. And for a split second, I was like, "Yeah, that's pretty good. I should have done that." <laughs> stop, stop the presses, scrap it. Mm-hmm. Can we I, ship them back maybe, to China? Can we? Can we not? Can we unprint these books? I got a better idea. Mary Tyler Moorcock makes me. If there had been like a 1978 adaptation of Elric starring Mary Tyler Moore as Elric, yeah, that would be that's the you have created a universe that I'm mad I don't live in now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I uh, I wish I had a, a greater explanation other than I just thought it sounded funny, and then I realized if I was going to do a book about a you know preteen adventurer 
putting Moorcock in the name is not a good way to start. Just not a good idea. Yeah. Especially with, when, like, with the joke of the title being, like, you are drawing a certain amount of attention to the name. Oh, yeah. 100%. And specifically everything up to the last syllable. Yeah. 100%. Completely. Yeah. But I, it, in some ways, that the joke being kind of overly thought out and complicated and then me forgetting that it's a joke and taking it really seriously is like a perfect synecdoche for the process of making the book and selling the book because I'm extremely proud of it. And now that it is out and been getting a lot of very positive, you know, critical response, um, I think it makes a little bit, uh, it's a little bit easier to understand what it is. But in the process of selling it, trying to convince a publisher in 2024 to publish a half adventure comic, half prose novel from the future was not an easy sell. <laughs> that was not an easy sell, dude. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about that because even like if when you open it up, you get the the publisher's note to let you know what kind of book you're getting into. Yeah, can I read this really quick? I got the book right here. Hold on. So the, yeah, publisher's, note, the publisher's note uh, is, um, publisher's note, the book you're about to read offers an unauthorized history of events that cannot be scientifically authenticated. We believe them to be true, but we cannot verify the claims of the individuals involved. On the subject of Mary Tyler Moore, Moorhawk, uh, this book is in no way sanctioned or licensed by the owners of the underlying intellectual property. Neither WDN Studios, Antonio Heldrone Durthberg, or Connie Harvowitz Kurt, or their parent company, Timeless Entertainment, have given permission for this publication. <laughs> no one right. else is going to think that's half as funny as I do, but I think that's really fucking funny. Look, that's how you got to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you've got to write the book that makes you laugh. Yeah, because there's no money in this bitch. Like, there's there's no other reason. To do it. <laughs> so maybe having given having given the publisher's note, I think that hints at what we're getting into. But what is your what is your elevator pitch for? Okay, this is what this book is. The quick and dirty version of it, which doesn't do it justice, is it's Infinite Jest meets Johnny Quest. The longer Infinite version, Quest. Is, yeah, uh, the. The longer version of it is uh, the, the, it's a comic, it's a graphic novel, a novel project that is split into two halves. One half of it is a comic book uh, action-adventure story about a preteen adventurer cut from the same cloth as Johnny Quest or Nancy Drew, named Mary Tyler Moorhawk, who spends her days as a globe-trotting adventurer in a uh, kind of cabal or conglomerate of super scientists, uh, and we follow them on what may or may not be their final adventure as they're trying to stop the world from ending. The other half of the book, you're reading magazine articles and zine entries created by a journalist named Dave Baker, who lives 100 years in the future, and he is obsessed with a TV show called Mary Tyler Moorhawk that only lasted nine episodes. And his life gets turned upside down when he realizes that the creator of the TV show, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, is also named Dave Baker. And that sends everything off on a bizarre metatextual mystery where he tries to figure out what happened to this reclusive, definitely not Steve Ditkoian figure. So so the the Michael Moorcock stuff goes beyond that original joke. You are you are creating multiverses with layers. A hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So 
Dave, there are two. Okay, so there are two Dave Bakers in the book, and then there's also you, Dave Baker. <laughs> yes, yes. Now I have written books in the past where the author Matt D. Wilson is a character, right? Right. And I have to put myself outside of myself to make this person with my name, who is ostensibly at least partially me into a character in a book who has his own thoughts and feelings and experiences. You you did that twice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, like how much of them is you and how much, and how, how, like what kind of mental gymnastics do you have to go through to separate these two Dave Bakers from the you Dave Baker? (laughs) What is that process? And how much payola did I have to give to Chris Starris at at Top Shelf to convince him to publish a book with indie comics barely known quantity Dave Baker as not one, but two of the central protagonists in the book? (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, to not not be glib for a minute. I owe Chris Starris a lot. Like the fact that he believed in this project means the world to me, and the fact that it's getting, you know, the positive feedback that it is, is purely because his vision to say, you know what, this is just crazy enough, it just might work. To answer your question of how do you differentiate that, um, I think I would have wildly different answers to that depending on when you had asked me. Right now, uh, I'm riding high, baby. The book is out. We did it. We won the lottery. About two years ago, man, I don't know, man. It it would have been a much darker conversation because... (laughs) There's there's a there's a lot of rejection that comes with this project, which is you know that's what happens when you try and make something that's weird. Like, yeah, it's inherently not as commercial and therefore riskier, and it's going to be more difficult to get a larger corporate entity to believe in your harebrained, bizarro ideas. Like, it's just going to be more difficult. And at various points in time, that rejection felt really hard to deal with. Like, I did not. I was like, is, is, what is the point in this? Like, what am I doing to myself? Um, and I think some of that frustration and one of the themes in the book is a, the creator lost in a maze of their own creation. And I don't think that that comes by accident. It's never a surprise to me when we talk to someone and they're like, oh yeah, I was working through some stuff in this book. Because, you know, Matt and I are both writers. <laughs> yeah. We know how it goes you're you're always working through something it's weird to be working through the thing that is caused by the thing you're working on right yeah in a given project yeah i think i relate to people like henry darger or vivian mayer or any of these kind of like outsider artists who like spend their whole life obviously racked with mental illness like creating works out of a compulsion as opposed to as a means of gaining financial remuneration. Uh, and that sometimes is easier to deal with. And sometimes it's more difficult to deal with. And in this book specifically, um, I was trying to do the exact opposite of the last thing that I had written and drawn myself, um, which had not been received in, in a way that I was hoping it would. Um, and I wanted to make something that, was uncompromising in every form, almost to the degree of being 
the joke. Like the bit is I'm not going to compromise at all uh, because you can't really do that in life. Like life isn't black and white. You can't live a world in a world where there's not something you're giving up, right? Um, and Mary Tyler Moorhawk for me was a, uh, I'm going to reinvent everything from the ground up. I'm going to change the way I draw. I'm going to write this novel. I'm going to change the way I letter. I'm going to color it myself. I'd never colored anything before. Um, I'm going to do all of this on a scale that is almost comically maximalist. And that will be the joke. Um, and if it doesn't work, man, is it not going to work? And if it works, man, will it work? Question mark. So everything you're talking about of like, you know, working through some stuff. Like, I think it's kind of thematically appropriate for this book that the thing that I'm working through is the making of the book, which is in of itself the thing I'm working through, which is also the thing I'm trying to do, which is also the thing I'm working through. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is It is both the, the product of and the source of. Totally. 100%. In these ways. Yes. Now, did you also do the, like, uh, like the... The graphic design layout of the the prose sections. So uh, the two people who worked with me um, on this project are Mike Lopez, who's the he, he's the designer who laid out everything. He's fucking amazing, and the book would not be what it is without his design aesthetic. Um, and the photographer David Catalano, uh, whose photographs are all throughout the the physicalist today sections of the book. Um, and I, I just think the world of both of them, they're, they both took my ideas and made it a hundred times better. Um, and after I finally finished everything and had been rejected for the, you know, 17th time by various publishers, I was like, guys, we just got to finish this thing. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to deliver fully finished printable files to these fucking publishers. Cause this book is too weird to sell any other way. And they were like, all right, dude, let's fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that is, that's the response you want. When yeah. You describe, would you describe a project like this? You yeah, want that exact tone, those exact words. Yeah. You know, I mean, specifically with, with Mike, you know, I think his design chops and his, the choices that he made in terms of delineating some of those prose sections in the book, it just gives it such a, forlorn aesthetic and it gives it this kind of weird cavernous you know like uh dark oppressive feeling while using photographs that david took catalano took that are sometimes really dark and strange and neon light filled and sometimes it's just like a kid at a junk fair you know but there's something about the way that he photographed uh, photographized my god jesus photographed this little kid that just is so eerie and you put those two guys together and you know with my story it takes on a me another it's 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 the book is greater than the sum of its parts if that makes any sense to me anyway to me i don't want to speak for anyone else in terms of format you know you gave the the high concept i'm curious why you added the extra layer of the nine episode TV show as opposed to just having it be about the comic mm. rather than, than the book about the comic or about the TV show about the comic. Like what, what was, 
Why did you go for the extra step that is not in the medium that you're working with? Um, yeah, I, so I, you know, there's a kind of running theme through the whole book about the intersection and commercialization of the intersection between the, the way fans interact with something and the way a creator interacts with something. And that the, the tension between the, the, the barrier between fan and creator is a large source of conflict in the book because the journalist Dave Baker is obviously very jealous of the cartoonist J- Dave Baker and he's very covetous of him um, in that he wants he wants to track this guy down. No one else has been able to find him. He's this recluse living out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody has been able to ask him for definitive answers of why the show got canceled, why you know he's left society, whatever. And over the course of the book, especially through the footnotes, there's all of these kind of strange, broken dreams and people who've had their things taken away from them or people who want to be creative but haven't or couldn't manage to do it in a way that's not imitating someone else. Like they couldn't find their own voice. Like there's a running joke about a character named G.R.R. Liebes who's just like obsessed with the future version of Dave Baker's um, unmade projects to the degree that everything he does is just a riff on them. So in the in the book, there's a joke that like the thing that Dave Baker was pitching to WDN Studios before Mary Tyler Moorhawk got off the got on the air was a show called Larry the Boy with Werewolf Arms. And it's, it's like some idea that he's had. It's like his passion project is Larry the Boy with Werewolf Arms. And J.R.R. Liebes quit being a journalist after having written the definitive biography on Dave Baker uh, called uh, A Cult of One, colon, The Unmade Genius of Dave Baker, or some silly title like that. And J.R.R. Liebes quits being a, an acclaimed nonfiction writer to be a novelist. And the only book that he ends up completing is called, like, George, the guy with panther hands, and like that kind of you you have this passion and this drive for a thing, but it never fully manifests how you want it to, or when it does manifest, it goes so far beyond your wildest dreams that inevitably it gets taken away from you. You know, there's a lot of talk about Siegel and Schuster in the book and what happened with them with DC Comics, you know, basically stealing Superman for $138. And I felt like the way that the, uh, the commercialization of these projects that start so intimately of you know somebody with a pen and a pa- piece of paper and then ends up expanding out into other media, whether that be video games or movies or whatever, uh, and nine times out of ten, the creators are left by the wayside either by they're forced out or by choice because they feel like they're being uh, – like their thing is evolving past them. It felt important to have the thing that people are – kind of gaining access to the quote-unquote franchise of Mary Tyler Moorhawk be an adaptation. You know what I mean? Because, I I mean, I guess I could have structured it around the comics, but I feel like (laughs) the the way civilians are conditioned to view things are that, oh, a comic is only successful when it's adapted into another medium. Um, uh, But maybe 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 there's another story to be written about you know, a a comic that is so successful that people actually become obsessed about it as opposed to the adaptation. <laughs> you mentioned footnotes. Yes. And 
I, I wanted to talk about the, the the choices involving footnotes in the book because I am also a fan of footnotes. I've used them a lot, but they're not something you often see in comics. You see editor's notes all the time, yeah, but not so much footnotes. And I feel like here the footnotes are are a real storytelling device. Like they're they're not just supplementary like footnotes so often are uh so i i just i guess how did you decide to play around with footnotes in this and and how did you choose that as sort of like a delivery system for you know exposition and the other things that that the footnotes accomplish in here yeah so just to be clear there there are two types of footnotes in the book in the comics sections there are footnotes that are very similar to editor's notes, but aren't literally editor's notes, Um, you know, trading on the kind of silver age, uh, you know, Stan Lee or Jim Shooter style of, you know, somebody says, "Uh, we got to get him to the pyramid of oneness. And then there's an asterisk and then a small yellow box that says, you want to know about the pyramid? You got to read the next issue, kid. So there's a lot of like jokey stuff like that in the comics sections um, but in the prose stuff, there's maybe even more footnotes, primarily because I got really obsessed with the idea of bifurcating prose and text in the same way that comics use two images and a gutter to make three three ideas into one. Uh, you know, there's an image, it's a guy standing there, then there's a gutter, and then there's a, another image, and now the guy's running, and your brain fills in the gap in between. And I got really obsessed with the idea of using the time that it takes your eye to travel from a primary prose narrative to the bottom of the page to read a footnote to replicate that same idea of you're using time and a space where your eye technically isn't doing anything to build narrative connections. And I was really obsessed with the essays of David Foster Wallace uh, specifically consider the lobster and a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. And, uh, the Marxy Danielewski book, uh, house of leaves, because they, they both use footnotes in these very intricate, interesting ways where they're using the real estate of a page to force you to read and force you to learn how to read in a way that you're not accustomed to. And that to me felt kind of similarly to how a lot of people have to figure out how to read comics in that when you're a young person, you don't really notice that you're learning how to read comics because you just learn. You learn you're learning everything. You're a new fresh mind. And so as an adult, I think people like the three of us who are well steeped in the the graphic arts as they say, uh, <laughs> uh, they're we're used to it, but when you show a civilian what a comic is, they literally have to be like, wait, top left, bottom right? This is we up. Oh, uh, okay. Which I think, you know, is part of the reason why something like, you know, uh, Watchmen, which is a very rigid storytelling mechanic to it, or even Walking Dead, where it's all just grids that mimic the way a camera moves, are you know, very commercially consumable because it doesn't require a lot of media literacy from comics and non-comics readers alike. And I kind of wanted to do the reverse where I wanted to take comics and 
introduce comics readers to more of a prosaic or a literary way of constructing the way your eye moves around a page utilizing footnotes. Folks, you heard it here first. Dave Baker says Alan Moore and anybody else who uses the nine-panel grid is bullshit. Which would be really ironic because my whole book is just a nine-panel grid. (laughs) I wasn't going to mention that part. Okay, yeah, never mind, never mind, never mind. Yeah, that's right, Alan Moore. I don't like that, guys. He doesn't seem very nice, and it seems like he was treated really well by this industry. Why is he so grumpy? <laughs> Man, we're, we're really getting into it. All the, all the hot-button gotchas. Yeah, dude. Coming out this time. Yeah, yeah you're, you guys are going to get me canceled. You know, I'm going to be like... For, for, you know what? I... I I'm over the nine panel grid. Honestly, I'll 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 say it. Not not yours, of course. <laughs> right? Yeah. Present company. Not accepted. yours. Yeah, yeah. What 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 about it? Is what about the nine panel grid? Are you not into? It's just like so, like it's. I feel like it is overused now. I and of one person who uses it a lot. Is there is there a, a is there something I'm not thinking of? Are you thinking of Tom King? Yes. Then, then, then maybe there's the, the more specific discussion <laughs> that there is to be had. But no, like there's, I I feel like I have seen it a lot lately, and again, it's prominently in in Tom King books. Uh, and and I get it. Like there's there's nothing inherently wrong with it, and it does like lend itself to to pacing in a particular way that works. I am curious as to why you used it, though, since we're talking about it. Before I go any further with what yeah. I'm saying. Uh, yeah, the, the choice for the nine-panel grids um, comes from a few places that all dovetail together, hopefully to make a holistic thematic point. Maybe, if I've done it right. Um, the primary one being uh, I'm a huge Steve Ditko fan. And a lot of Ditko's uh, 60s and 70s work all used variations of a nine-panel grid. Um, And so I really wanted to try and mimic that rhythm of not using a nine-panel grid in a decompressed way that a lot of contemporary people use it, which I like as well. It's just a different use of... uh, of the nine panel grid. I wanted to try and use it in a more silver age way where you're just telling your actual story with a nine panel grid. Um, and you know, it's really hard to do that because you know, we're binocular meaning we like compositions that are horizontal because that's how we see the world is through a horizontal, you know, rectangular frame and, uh, hate to break it to you, but nine panel grids, them shits ain't, horizontal they're vertical <laughs> there's nine vertical uh compositions that you have to make work um and it's also just more dense so part of it was i wanted to mimic for the feel of the book ditko's pacing another part of it is i wanted the book to feel the comic sections of the book to feel a little um oppressive in the that they i wanted it to be hyper dense um, to match the density of the prose. Because if the comic stuff was just three panel pages, it wouldn't, you would just kind of blow through it and then you'd get hit with this wall of text for the prose sections and be like, it doesn't feel balanced. You know, it, it doesn't feel like the, the two halves of the book are talking to each other. Um, 
And then also the joke being that old man Dave Baker in the book is kind of a Steve Ditko archetype. Um, I felt like you had to you had to pay homage to that um, mania that you know I I think most people who use the nine panel grids they don't use them anymore because it's hard and it drives you crazy. <laughs> <laughs> See, those are all like very thoughtful reasons. Uh, and, and again, like I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but uh, you know, I mean, Kirby used a six panel grid. Yes. Uh, most of the time. Uh, and then just, you know, spice things up with double page spreads. I just look, here's what it is. I've been reading a lot of berserk lately. Mm. Matt got into berserk. Then I got into berserk. And now all we talk about is berserk. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> a lot of really good page layouts in berserk. Yeah. And, you know, I think about, uh, like people like, like Paul Grist, who was on the show recently, who is so notable for, innovative and interesting uses of the page that when you have an interesting and innovative use for a nine panel grid, I think it works really well like it does in Mary Taylor Moorhawk. But I feel like a lot of people use it because yeah, Watchmen's pretty good. Yeah, I agree. I I agree with that idea. I also think that a lot of the people who at various points in the history of the medium have been interested in the nine panel grid are not interested in it in varying formal ways they're usually preoccupied with a specific formal way of using the nine panel grid, um, which, uh, you know, I, I like Tom King's comics, so I like the decompressed thing that he does. Um, but there's very few people that really are into the nine panel grid in a way that I feel like, uh, is, uh, maximizing of its full narrative potential. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) And with that, I think it's time to find out what our listeners mean by asking you some questions that were sent to us from listeners of this very show. Matt, if the people want to get in on our conversations with people like Dave Baker, not to be confused with Dave Baker or Dave Baker, how exactly can they go about that? Well, Chris, uh, what they shouldn't do is go to that bad website that was once known as Twitter. Uh, Don't do that anymore. We don't look at that anymore, and we don't take questions there. Um, Instead, we're taking questions from two much better places. One is our show Discord, which you have to be invited to be a member of, but if you ask us for an invitation, we will get you one. So quite a few questions are going to come from there, uh, listener questions, and also on Blue Sky. We're on Blue Sky at warrocketajax.bsky.social and uh, we'll put out the call for questions there on Thursday night when we do our interview. So if you want to ask a question on the show, go to one of those two places. And Blue Sky, you don't need an invitation to be on anymore. You can just join. So go there, follow us, and then you can ask questions. Uh, Our first question, Dave, is going to come from our Discord. And it's from Robert Secundus, who wants to know, uh, what are the rawest moments in Star Trek? Now, to define raw for you, we have been doing a segment on the show for the past little while where we rank raw moments in comics. And uh, Chris defines a raw moment as the kind of moment that makes you want to 
uh, tear your shirt off. So what's something from Star Trek that makes you feel that way? Oh my gosh. The answer, I, for me, the an- this is, you know, every Star Trek fan is going to be very different. But for me, the Star Trek moment uh, that is, the, the, by that definition of Raw, is actually not necessarily, a, it is both a moment and it is the, the lack of a moment. Star Trek Generations, when they kill Kirk, and then they just leave him on that fucking planet. <laughs> they, just leave him. they just leave that bitch there. They're just like, yeah, he's like the best of us or whatever, but like, let's just bury him on another planet. Nobody's going to be there. Nobody's, the crew of the Enterprise isn't even going to give him a funeral? They're not even going to stand around this pile of rocks that Picard put on top of him and be like, here was a good guy. He was pretty chill. Let's go. Like, they just leave him there? That fucking, I don't know, man. I want a funeral. If you're going to kill James fucking T. Kirk, give that bitch a funeral. Uh, wild. Uh, Renegade Dope Dog, true name from our Discord. Is that you, is that you disagreeing or not having enough information to, like, not, like oh, not being a Star Trek fan? I, oh, we have the information, Dave. We have the information. I, I... It's it is a type of raw. I'll say that it doesn't necessarily make me want to tear my shirt off. Uh, I mean, it, it makes me want to rend my clothes. Hey Matt, hey yeah. Matt, do you yeah. want to hear my answer to that question? I do. There are four lights. I knew it was going to be that. Yeah, boy. Oh, I, see, I misunderstood the I misunderstood the fucking thing. You're saying it's the best moment that you get fucking the most jazzed at. Yeah, yeah, you get hyped. Get you like pumped. Like, oh so yeah, no! I went the other way. I was like the most frustrated. I went the most frustrated. Uh, like tear your shirt off in a bad way. I, yeah, I mean, tear your shirt off in a good way. <laughs> oh, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Ooh, okay. Let me think for one second. Then, I mean, it's either. I think it's got to be either uh, the Maritzka episode in DS Nine season one, where you find out that he's not actually a war criminal and he's just doing it to try and give the Bajoran people a, a sense of closure. That's a okay. pretty good, that's a pretty good swerve where you're, I, I remember the first time I saw that I did not see that coming. I was like, Oh my God, what? Or in, is it called Sim? No, that's the, that's the enterprise one. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's that one where, where they, they kill the, nah, never mind. You know what? I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to go with that one. It's fine. <laughs> we'll stay that's with that. that. That's a good the shit where they find out that Miles O'Brien has killed so many Cardassians that he's lost count. It also fucking owns. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's his like inner light episode, right? Where he's like in a prison of his own mind, right? Yeah, yeah. When he when he experiences uh like ten years in a prison camp in the span of three days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miles O'Brien had it rough, bud. Yeah, yeah. You should have stopped uh, me, fellas. You should have stopped me before when I was making a fool of myself, and I'm like, eh, this is the I worst thought, moment. I, I thought maybe you were like, hey, fuck James Kirk. I don't know. Nah, <laughs> dude. Nah, dude. I was upset. I was out here crying. I was like, they didn't even give my boy a fucking funeral? This is bullshit. Uh, all right. Here's our next question. It is from Renegade Dope Dog, true name. Is Jake Sisko a good novelist? That's a good question. I would, I would, I would have to say that I think he probably was right. Like in that episode where Tony Todd plays old man Jake Sisko, he seems like a well, well uh, 
adjusted emotional guy. You know, he's willing to sacrifice himself to save his dad. That's fucking great. That's a good guy. I'm sure he writes good novels. Did anybody have better guest roles on Star Trek than Tony Todd, who got to be grown-up Jake Sisko and Worf's brother? And that Herogen general, too. He was oh, the that's general. right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Tony Todd was good on, had a good guest role on Xena. Can Tony I, Todd's great. Love Tony I, Todd. Can I tell you guys my Tony Todd story? Please. Absolutely. All right. So this is like 2014, 15. I was in the middle of rewatching TNG, like you do, and I had just gotten to the Kern stuff. Uh, so I was like, hell yeah, Tony Todd. I walked down. This is when I lived over by the Paramount lot, and I walked down to the grocery store in the corner. Uh, it's near the Paramount lot, and it was like maybe 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. I'm going around, I'm getting groceries or whatever because I'm a maniac and I grocery shop late at night. And so I'm there about to check out and there's a big black dude in front of me and I realize, oh my God, that's fucking Tony Todd. So I'm standing there next to Tony Todd after having literally just watched the episode of TNG where he first shows up. And he like glances back at me and it's, he can tell by my, like I'm trying to be cool, but he can tell by the way we make eye contact that I know who he is. And he kind of like, He's wearing like one of those like page boy hats and he like pulled the page boy hat down a little bit and tried to make himself look small. And he's like, you know, six, four or whatever. So it didn't really work. Uh, and I, but I'm like, don't say anything to Tony Todd. Don't be, don't be that guy. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to have anybody talk to him about Candyman. And I'm like a huge Candyman fan too. Uh, yeah, so I was like, all right, you. Tony, I'm not going to fucking say anything to you. Whatever. And then we, he puts the grocery, he, he was only buying a DiGiorno pizza. He was just buying a DiGiorno pizza. He puts it on the little conveyor belt thing, puts the red demarcation baton thing. I put my, I'm starting to put my groceries on. And then uh, something happened where one of my groceries things like spilled into his little area. He picked it up and put it back on the other side for me. And I like, <laughs> I like glanced at him and went like, kapla. And he just shook his head, paid for that pizza, and left. Oh, God. So good. So good. (laughs) I don't know if it's comforting or a little disheartening that Tony Todd eats DiGiorno pizza like the rest of us. Man, Tony Todd just wanted to have a quiet night in, watch some Netflix. (laughs) Yep. You should have been like, like, hey, man, looks like like the Sons of Moog are uh, are against DiGiorno tonight. Yep. Yep, pretty much. Yeah. All right. Here's a, here's a creative question from uh, Patrick O'Duffy, the boss dog at the gates of hell, who wants to know who would win in a fight between Mary Tyler Moorhawk, Starhawk, Nighthawk, Darkhawk, Firehawk, Hawkman, and Murder Falcon. Oh man, that's a lot of hawks, bro. That's all the hawks. That's many hawks. That's damn. Every every hawk. Patrick O'Duffy could think of. I think. And yet, no Blackhawk. Did he say Blackhawks? Did he say the Blackhawks? Nope. Blackhawk was not on the list, no. Oh, Patrick O'Duffy, man. You got to get your Blackhawk game up, dude. Um, I mean, you know, I'm going to be self-serving here and say Mary Tyler Moorhawk would definitely win fucking in stores now, baby. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect answer. Uh, Stone Cold HCC, an account that exists only to ask questions of War Rocket Ajax, wants to know, why would anyone ever use a water fountain when there's chocolate ones? 
guys, I'm not, I'm not a big, I'm not a big enough wrestling person to know this. I know, I know that this is a joke, but after having put my foot in my mouth <laughs> over this fucking raw bullshit, you guys let me walk out on this plank all by myself and then pulled it back in. It's I true. It's true. I, the the inside jokes will will get you. Uh, it's it's a great question, Stone Cold. I I, I don't think chocolate fountains are. They're they're like electric car charging stations. We got to get more of them. <laughs> also, that ain't gonna hydrate you, bud. You get if, you, if that's what you're using for hydration, you gotta you 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 might need to go to the doctor. Here's here's a question from Uzi from our Discord. Uh, Action Hospital, Awesome Hospital, Awful Hospital. How are there three letter A hospital comics, and which is next? That's a good question. The real question is, when are we going to do a Action Hospital, Awesome Hospital crossover? 2013 would have been the time to do that, I think. Eh, we could do it for the anniversary, right? The 20-year anniversary? 10-year anniversary? <laughs> I don't know. All right, I'll get I'll get together with uh with Chad and Matt Diggs, and we will figure out when the 20th anniversary of Awesome Hospital is. Yeah, right. We can make it happen, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Be here first, folks. Uh, yeah, I I I, I w- would love it. <laughs> uh, there are lots of other a adjectives that could describe a hospital like absurd hospital mm. amazing hospital mm-hmm. abhorrent hospital mm-hmm. lots of directions a hospital could go in and yet probably all of them would be as unfinancially successful as action hospital <laughs> Our our buddy Ben, Franz Ferdinand Two on Blue Sky, asks, and this is for all of us: What is a plot point on Star Trek that you would like to revisit or flesh out? I, I mean, Dave, it sounds like the the unceremonial burial of uh, unceremonious burial of James D. Kirk is right up there for you. Yeah, yeah, that and yeah, I mean. Frankly, that's that's the number one. It's just so insane to me that that's how they dispatched Kirk. It's so sad, and I'm not into it. Um, but you know, there's been a lot of really good Star Trek. It's just that one, that moment was not not that hot. That's fair. That's fair. Chris, what's a what's a Star Trek moment you would like to revisit? I've I've answered this one on the show before. That that it is. The the third part of the Leah Brahms trilogy. <laughs> where where Jordy takes a minute to think about, hang on, the Enterprise created a hologram woman that's in love with me. Maybe we should maybe I should think about this for five seconds. Yeah, I mean that that whole yeah, I agree. That sh- that shit sucks. That shit was weird even when I was a kid. Like I loved Jordy and the fact that that Leo Brahms stuff is like Jordy LaForge doesn't know how to talk to women was like what? Have you seen LeVar Burton? Like 
What are you and talking that, like, about? That Leah Brahms' whole thing of like, why did you make a sex doll version of me in the holodeck? And Jordy's like, I've just tried to be nice to you? And you won't let me be nice? And it's like, eh, let's... Mm. Yeah, completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. LeVar Burton deserved better than that for his Spotlight episodes. Yeah, completely. But at least he got the one where he's a lizard man, right? No? Sure did. <laughs> also, there's a Star Trek novel that I have that opens with the uh, Starship Enterprise Beach Volleyball Tournament. Mm. That Worf, Riker, and Jordy are on one team. And, like, that's that's an episode. Mm. That's where's the where's the Star Trek Marvel swimsuit special? <laughs> oh, fellas, fellas! Oh my goodness! I just realized the moment that I fist pump the most at every time is the DS Nine episode, the Niners, where they're going, "Hey, better, better, better! Hey, better, better! Swing! Hey, better, better! Swing!" And then Worf says, "Death to the opposition!" <laughs> I I get so yep. much joy from that stupid joke. That's pretty good. I uh, have been watching. Just whatever is on the Pluto TV Star Trek channel lately. Yeah. And uh, that is like right, like that is like the centerpiece of their like station identification ad. Like Worf mm-hmm. saying death to the opposition in the baseball, in the uniform. Um, it's, it's fantastic. Um, the thing I would like to revisit in Star Trek is. Uh, in the original series, the the episode the Corbomite maneuver, mm-hmm. where you know it seems like there's this big scary, spooky looking alien that's like hounding the Enterprise, and then it just turns out to be little kid Ron Howard or uh, Clint Howard. Clint Howard, yeah. What? Where's like we haven't seen Baylock's people ever since then. That I and, know of. And one of the Enterprise crew goes and lives with him, and we never see that guy again either. Yeah. What happened? Where, what, where's the rest of Baylock's people? What are they up to? Because they were like on the edge of explored space at that time. And, and yeah, what happened to the, the, uh, the Starfleet officer that just like stays with him? Uh, I would love to explore those two things. Before we move on from this for one second, uh, to talk super dorky Star Trek stuff, have you guys watched Star Trek New Voyages? Have, have, have you watched this? New Voyages? Yes. Do you know of this? I, or I don't know New Voyages. Okay, so let me let me let me let me, <laughs> let me talk to you about some dorky shit for a second. There's this guy. His name is James Colley. He's an Elvis impersonator. He has no kids and no family, so he spends all of his money from his Elvis impersonating business building Star Trek sets. He built an entire Enterprise set in a warehouse in upstate New York, Ticonderoga specifically. He has filmed an entire Star Trek TV show on this fucking set. And it's written by original series writers DC Fontana and David Gerald, and starring... Fucking Nichelle Nichols, uh, Walter Koenig, and George Takei, uh, as well as a bunch of other people playing random characters. Basically, like, they play 
local community theater actors play their characters on the show and then every X amount of episodes they come up with a concocted reason to have, oh my gosh, uh, Walter Koenig's here, so guess what? Chekhov is aging rapidly. No! Will he survive? Tune in now to find out. And it's they're it's mesmerizing. It's mesmerizing. <laughs> I'm looking at the Wikipedia for it now, and uh, they've also had Grace Lee Whitney and Denise Crosby. Yes, yes, yes. They that's, made a that's feature film. Too. They made a feature film that has like everybody in it: Chase Masterson, Garrett Wong, uh, Alan Ruck. Uh, yeah, they they made a feature film called "Of Gods and Men," and then. 11 or 12 episodes of the TV show. Uh, yeah, it's like my favorite thing. I'm, I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's going to have to do it as far as listener questions. Uh, Dave Baker, thank you so much for joining us uh, for the show. Uh, before we let you go, please let all our listeners know uh, where they can get uh, all your work and also uh, where they can follow you online. You can find my uh, my books on my website, heydavebaker.com, and uh, you can find me on socials at xdavebakerx, and uh, you can find Mary Tyler Moorhawk uh, anywhere books are sold. Uh, it's very cool. I think it's neat. Yesterday on comicbook.com, it got referred to as a masterpiece, which is something I'll be processing for the next, oh, I don't know, decade. Uh, which will be good because as soon as I've processed that and internalized that, then we'll be ready for our Action Hospital Awesome Hospital crossover. <laughs> our guest has been Dave Baker. Dave, it's always a joy to talk to you. Please come back anytime. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks once again to Dave Baker for joining us. Definitely go check out Mary Tyler Moorhawk. It is a wild book. Yeah, from what I've seen of it, it is enticing i i can't wait to get my hands on it and read it it feels like the kind of book that you should absolutely read in print yeah yeah uh but i think that's gonna do it for our show this week matt yeah uh it sure is uh if you would like to get in touch with us there are quite a few ways that you can do that you can email us at our email address, which is warrocketpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us questions on Tumblr at warrocketpodcast.tumblr.com. We're on Blue Sky at warrocketajax.bsky.social. And uh, you can join our Discord to get in touch with us. Contact us in one of the ways I just mentioned email, Blue Sky, Tumblr. And ask us for an invitation, or you can go to our Patreon and ask us for an invitation uh, to our Discord, and we will shoot you a link so you can join our Discord and be part of that community of War Rocket Ajax fans. A whole lot of our listener questions uh, now come from our Discord. We have a channel there of of listener questions, as well as many other things uh, that are uh, thriving discussions over there so uh go join our discord if you if you like the show and you want to be part of uh, a community about it our website is warrocketajax.com it has every episode of the show we've ever done all 600 and nice regular episodes 
as well as all the Every Story Evers, all the Comics Catch-Ups, everything's over there uh, on our website. WarRocketWiki.com is the fan-run repository of all the information you could ever need about this here show, War Rocket Ajax, so go check that out and contribute if you want. If you want to find me and my stuff, go to mattdwilson.net to find links to my books, my comics, my other podcasts, and my social medias. Chris, where can people find you? Here. Yeah, right here. It's pretty much just here, Matt. So keep listening to the show, is what you're saying. Yeah. Keep listening to the show. Be here next time. We're going to have another guest. It's going to be a lot of fun. Until then, folks, do not forget that Black Lives Matter. Trans rights are human rights. As are abortion rights. Drag is not a crime. Cops aren't your friends. But we love you. We love you. Yeah!